We rejoice in it. We thank You for what Christ has accomplished. And as we consider Your Word today, I pray that we would give ourselves wholeheartedly to discerning its meaning and its points that would apply to our life by way of conviction. I ask for change and direction that we would submit to Your Word and to its teaching. I pray that the Spirit of God would be active among us and would direct us into Your purposes. We thank You for this opportunity and ask that we'd maximize it. And for anyone here who does not know Christ as Savior, we pray that You would draw them to Yourself and draw all of us to the wonder of the Gospel message of Your saving purposes toward Your people in Christ. It is in His name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Later this month, Britain's royal family will go off script. In a few days at Westminster Abbey, Prince William, a Windsor of royal blood, will marry Catherine Middleton, a commoner. In an article entitled Citizen Kate, Alison Pearson explains that, quote, William was expected to pick his princess from a select group of well-bred young fillies. But Kate has proven a better match for William than one of those, as some insiders describe them, flaky aristos. Pearson writes, Whatever snobs may say about the suitability of the match, far from lowering the tone of the monarchy, this middle-class girl could well save it. Perhaps the way forward for the royal family of Windsor is to go off script, trusting a commoner to bring stability to the throne of England. Not that it makes a lot of difference, but perhaps. What does matter in this waking world, what does matter is that the author of history loves to go off script to work out his redemptive purposes. When God chose a family through whom Messiah would be born, He chose an infertile couple. A family through whom Messiah would be born. And He chooses the infertile couple, Abram and Sarai of Ur. When God Himself chose a king for Israel, He did not choose the best looking or the oldest or one of the war heroes among Jesse's sons. He chose the youngest, a shepherd boy. Again and again in Scripture, God goes off script, working outside human expectations to reveal time and again the wonder of His power, the wonder of His wisdom. Well, He's at it again. As we return to the last chapter of the book of Ruth today, Ruth chapter 4, he's at it again. Chapter 3, we see a clandestine, risky, off-script, middle-of-the-night meeting between Ruth and Boaz, lying together under the cover of night in what would seem a rather compromising position. The light of a charactered man and the light of a charactered woman shines brightly out of the moral darkness of their times, the judges. And here at the threshing floor, a godly woman of integrity and steadfast loyalty makes herself available for marriage to an older man of equal integrity and steadfast loving kindness. In the still of that night, 
Boaz whispers his devotion to Ruth. And he promises that he will act decisively to protect her and to seek to secure her hand in marriage. This destitute, infertile Moabite woman is about to be brought under the wings of a husband who she knows will love her with protective, loyal provision and kindness. She knows Boaz. She knows how he has treated her in the past. She knows his character. And she rejoices to give herself, body and soul, to this man in marriage. But Ruth has one problem. Boaz is a man of integrity. Sometimes that's a problem. As a man of integrity, there is another man who stands legally in line to marry Ruth, and Boaz will honor that man's right. He will not take advantage of her. He will not work around the law. But he will be faithful to give this man his right as excited as he is about marrying Ruth, which seems to be indicated certainly in chapter 3. So just before dawn, Boaz sends Ruth from the threshing floor back to Bethlehem. And soon after that, it would appear, Boaz makes his way to the town as well. His mind is probably racing as he is laboring to keep his emotions and his expectations under control. This woman, perhaps he thinks, this noble, industrious, faithful, godly woman, this younger woman, is pleased to marry me. But will God allow it? I don't want to lose her to a man who loves her less than I do. But she's not my wife. Not yet. And maybe never. I must keep my desires in check. God, give me Ruth. Oh, think here, Boaz, think. Keep your head. As he trudges toward the city gate, the complicated legal minefield that awaits him swirls in his head. He tries to focus. He plots his strategy. And we find him then in chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, laboring for Ruth at the city gate. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and he sat down there. The gate leading into a walled city was the busiest place in the ancient town. The city gate of the ancient world was our city hall today and then some. This was where business transactions were legalized, where judicial matters were resolved, where public meetings were convened and community matters were settled. Sometimes were settled in the gate itself. There were rooms off to either side, built right into the wall of the city. At other times, it might have been out in front of the gate or within the courtyard generally. But wherever it was, there at the city gate, he seats himself to do business. And verse 1, Behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. And behold, it's a significant word. It indicates an element of surprise and good fortune. As Ruth happened upon the field of Boaz in chapter 2 and verse 3, So the Redeemer, Boaz, wants to see this man, and guess who walks by? He just happens to pass by. We know, of course, the hand of God is here again, bringing this man here at this time at the city gate. So, 
Verse 1, Boaz says, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took, that is, Boaz gathered, ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Now the word friend is, is, doesn't help us in our translation here. Probably a better way to say it in the English would be, Mr. So-and-so happens by. And he calls to him, he calls him Mr. So-and-so. In other words, the narrator is not going to use his name. He's left anonymous because, frankly, his name doesn't matter. But he is the Redeemer who stands between Boaz and Ruth. Boaz undoubtedly had something of a sleepless night that night. Undoubtedly, there is on his face the show of urgency, and both his relative here and the city elders are certainly curious to know what is on your mind, Boaz. And they sit down, they would be witnesses, they would legally stand in as those who would witness the transaction that's about to take place here, and Boaz lays that out for them in verse 3. Then he said to the Redeemer, he said to this other man, his relative, who has the right to Ruth as wife, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of this. I want to inform you of this and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me, that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Undoubtedly, Boaz's heart sinks there a bit, but he's not done. Let's think through some of the legal background here. We could go to it at great length, but I'll give you just a few of the significant pieces. The first piece is the Abrahamic covenant. God covenants with Abraham to give Abraham what? Remember those two parts? The land and an offspring. In that promise of God to the Israelites, there is the blessing of God upon them. And His covenant with Abraham, as the Mosaic law then comes later, it integrates with this Abrahamic promise. And there is devised in the law legal means to keep land in families and to keep family names alive. Because God has given this promise of land and family. And so it is of intense purpose of the law to keep these together. So land, when a man died, was passed down from him to his sons. If there were no sons, that land was passed down to the nearest male relative. Not simply to the family, to the wife and to the, children, to the daughters, if, they, if that was all that survived, but to the larger family put in the hands of a man who would carry on the work of keeping that land within the clan. Now widows in Israel who had no children were to be married then by the nearest available male relative in order to raise up offspring for the deceased. So in these two ways, the land stays with the family, and a person's name does not die out. This was a loving act, but it was rooted to the Abrahamic covenant. 
It was rooted in here, here in the Mosaic Law to be sure that a person's name would not be lost, that they would remain as part of the offspring that God had blessed. With that in mind, Boaz says to this relative, buy the land. Now here again, we, the English fails us. It would not have failed the Hebrew reader, but the word buy to us, buy land, means only one thing. You purchase it with money. But for the Hebrews, this Hebrew word was often used in other ways. <clears throat> and I think there's reasons to assume that's the case here. I ask you, does Naomi have a tract of land to sell that the narrator forgot to tell us about? I don't think that's the case. What she is seeking is a relative, a redeemer, who will take on the responsibility of this land until the year of Jubilee. Remember, as part of the law, every 50 years, Jubilee was proclaimed in the land, and all land claims reverted to the family and the clan to whom God gave that land when Israel came in in the conquest under Joshua. Leviticus 25 lays this stipulation out. Now, God's law was very pointed about Israel's responsibility to care for widows because they were entirely dependent on others. Land never passed from a man to his wife. It always passed from a man to his son or to the next male relative. So we're not to understand here that Naomi just has this piece of land to sell that she hasn't told Ruth about. Ruth has been out there gleaning just to stay alive, and suddenly Naomi pulls out this card and says, I've got a lot of cash here, or at least some land to cash in on. That's not what's happening. This is about the family name, not about money. Naomi wants this land to stay within the family. And in this sense, at least, to keep Elimelech's name alive. She wants Ruth, of course, to marry, to keep his name alive as well. Well, the man jumps at the opportunity. Legally, Boaz, as he says here, is in next in line to inherit the land. But subtly, he demonstrates that this nearer redeemer really wants the land which will highlight that there is a part of the deal he does not want. And so as the man jumps at the opportunity, I will acquire this land, I will assume this land, I will take care of this land and work it, Boaz says, oh, and by the way, there's one other matter to consider. Verse 5. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Again, buy the field, don't think give money for it, but acquire the use of this field until Jubilee. And what this means then is that the man must marry Ruth, and if there is a son that is born, that son will not be his son, that son will be counted as Malon's son and Elimelech's grandson. He will be serving this family line, giving himself and risking his own financial standing to have a son with Ruth that will take on this land and will live as Malon's son. 
In light of that, this man sees this all as a real deal changer. And so, verse 6, the one who was adamant, I want the land, says, the Redeemer now says, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. We see his selfishness here. You go ahead and impair your situation. I'm not going to impair mine. All he does is consider his own inheritance. He does not act in line with the Abrahamic covenant to take on this responsibility and to love this family in this way. We pause here for just a moment and ask the question, do you want to be irrelevant? Here's a good way. Live for your own selfish purposes. Think about no one else but yourself, no one else but your own family, no one else but the bottom line. And you go down in history as Mr. So-and-so. He's not even named because he doesn't matter. He vanishes from history in selfishness. But it is the faithful, loyal, loving kindness of Boaz that records this man's name for posterity. And at verse 7, we have a parenthetical comment now that's going to help us, as well as even the original readers who had lived long after this custom had passed. It's going to help us understand the custom that's about to take place. Verse 7, now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, acquire it for yourself, he drew off his sandal and he gave it to him. I mean, if somebody did that to you out in public, you'd be a little bit alarmed, wouldn't you? But here, this is understood to be the custom, and we don't really know where it comes from. It's it's an ancient custom. It might have symbolically stood for, this is the sandal that walked the land, my land, and now I give this sandal to you, it is now your land. Whatever the case, they understood the transaction has been made, and now the heart of Boaz begins to thrill. With the idea not simply of acquiring this land, but with the idea of acquiring Ruth. The man who stood in the way of this one that he loves and that he has given himself for is now to be his wife. And Boaz wants to make sure that everyone recognizes this, to establish this legally. Verse 9, Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon his sons. Also, here's the other side of the situation, Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Now undoubtedly, we see in the whispers of the night his love for Ruth, his desire to to be her husband. But we see here his nobility, his faithfulness, his noble response, that I want here to perpetuate the name of the deceased, 
to serve this line in this way, to give of myself so that the offspring that would come from the union between me and Ruth would be a son that would carry on Elimelech's name and Malon's name. He's a man of integrity and faithfulness. A kind man of loyalty we have already seen him to be. He now fulfills this role to the glory of God in honor of the covenant. And a man who right about now is quite thrilled to have a wedding in his future. The witnesses confirm the legality of the transaction. Verse 11, all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. We will remember this day. That, that was, they didn't have documentation. They didn't need it. It was in their mind, in their heads, and they would remember this. We've seen it happen. But not only did they bear witness to what has happened here, they also pronounce a blessing on Ruth, on a Moabite, and on the man who is willing to marry her. Middle of verse 11, May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. Remember Ephrathah, that possibly that ancient name for Bethlehem. Just a synonym. They bless Ruth and they bless Boaz. And may your house, verse 12, they continue, be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman, by this Moabite. Now, this is certainly off script. No one would expect a Moabite to return to the promised land with her mother-in-law. And having done that, no one would expect a Moabite to marry in the land. Especially a Moabite who was infertile. But perhaps this union would be used by God who loves to work off script to bring about His purposes. The reference here to Perez, the head of the clan of Elimelech, and to Tamar, a woman who gave birth to a son in which this leveret law, this marriage to a brother-in-law or marriage to a near relative, if we take it more expansively, uh, is part of that story, a sordid one in Genesis 38, but one that God in His providence chose ultimately to bless. And so they say, may you have children and may those children bless the world. In His mercy, God blessed her, Tamar. Perhaps He will bless this Moabite widow by giving her a son. Well, finally that day arrived and Boaz and Ruth covenanted to live as man and wife. They had been faithful to God. They had been faithful to one another. And undoubtedly there was great joy in this day. He was a godly man who loved God more than he loved her and thus loved her well. She was a godly woman who loved God more than she loved Him and thus loved Him well. And God smiled upon this union. The winter clouds of Ruth's encounter with bitter providence had given way to the midsummer breezes of God's sweet providence. And you get the distinct sense that God is working through this Moabite to bring about something great in Israel. The narrative turns then to Boaz marrying Ruth, who conceives a son, beginning at verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth 
and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Why that phrase? Why the Lord gave her conception? Probably pointing to her infertility in the years in Moab, married to Malon. God blesses the union of this man and this woman. And then the women, verse 14, said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may His name be renowned in Israel. Undoubtedly, the Redeemer refers to Boaz in an extended sense, but probably most specifically to this young son. You have a Redeemer. You have a son now. Both of your sons God has chosen to take in death. But now there's a a Redeemer for your old age. May His name be called. May His name be proclaimed in Israel. May He be a great man. Elimelech's name was alive again. How important this was to the Israelites. And these women rejoice. By this Son, God willing, that name would be perpetuated in the land of promise for many generations to come. The land was now in good hands. And now a son who would carry on the name. They rejoice with Naomi. Verse 15, He shall be to you a restorer of life, a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him, to a son. Naomi's bitter ordeal in Moab had given way to sweet providence. The woman who returned to Israel empty was now full again. And much of that fullness was rooted in the love of this most unusual woman from Moab. The word love, don't think in terms here of emotion, of sentiment. But the Hebrew word speaks of covenantal commitment which shows shows itself in acts of loyal devotion and persistent kindness. She is that kind of a woman. God uses this word when He commands the Israelites to love strangers in the land. Not to emotionally like them as such, but to be committed to them in persistent kindness toward them, to care for them in the land. Ironically here, it's the woman from outside the land, the stranger who is showing the Israelites how to love. Oh, this woman of commitment to you, Naomi. Think of what God has done through these years. Think of how He has cared for you despite your trial and heartache. She is worth seven sons to you. Seven sons was considered the perfect family. It was high commendation. Remarkable commendation in light of the fact that Ruth is a Moabite. She is the worth of seven sons to you. To have her as a daughter-in-law is to have the perfect home. And now a son. What an unlikely story. A Moabite comes in to save a family in Israel. She would, in the providence of God, serve God's saving purposes in a much greater way than this but they at least see this. Verse 16, Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. I think our translation is weak here. Taking him on her lap is really taking him to her chest. The point is she holds him and hugs him and draws him to herself. She becomes his nurse. She cares for this child during the day to help Ruth. 
In verse 17, the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. She's holding a boy, her grandson, and they name him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. It's almost impossible to believe for us that Boaz and Ruth had no part in naming the child that's almost impossible to believe is here. But in any event, the woman close to Naomi rejoice with her son. I don't know if they jump in and just take over the job and name him, or if they're just reflecting what he has been named and just speaking of it in that sense. Whatever the case, there's a story here we don't understand. He's their boy. That much is sure. They are so excited for this, for this woman, for their friend. May he be renowned in Israel. The blessing has gone out by the people of the town. May he be renowned in Israel. They had no idea what they were praying. All they know is this unusual story, this unusual young man. But they pray that God will bless him. They pray that God will make his name great. You realize the fulfillment of their prayer? far beyond what they could imagine, just to look at it in one tangible sense. To this very day, the Star of David adorns the official flag of Israel. Everywhere where the flag of Israel flies, there is the Star of David. May his name be renowned. This young boy becomes the grandfather of the greatest king in Israel's history. They had no idea. Nor did Ruth and Naomi what the results would be of their faithfulness. Someone reading this account, particularly someone familiar with the fame of David, might say, are you kidding me? King David? The great king of Israel from this Moabite woman? Are you kidding me? Verse 18, we're not kidding. These are the generations of Perez. Check it out. You know this, people of Judah. Perez fathered Hezron, and Hezron fathered Ram, and Ram fathered Aminadab, and Aminadab fathered Nashon, and Nashon fathered Salmon, and Salmon fathered Boaz, and Boaz fathered Obed, and Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. That David. This Moabite. There's a few rules with genealogies in Scripture. We have here a lineal genealogy. And the way that they would function, the line that you see on the graphic here down the right column, they were oriented toward the last name. In a lineal genealogy, the genealogy serves to prove that the last person legitimately serves a key position in the family and in the kingdom of God. And often that person would be listed at number 10, which then connects to the second rule of genealogies. Numerous generations are skipped. The word fathered then is used very loosely. But you arrange the genealogy so that the person in place 10 is the one whose position is being demonstrated. So you can choose 
whoever, what names you choose to come up with these ten names. But the third point is that often the seventh person listed is the key person on which the genealogy turns. So in Genesis chapter 5, you have Enoch who walks with God, listed number seven in that genealogy. Here, guess who's number seven? This is Boaz, the man of faithfulness who walks into the situation and becomes a father in the line of the great King David. Not the unknown Redeemer who was before him. And in the providence of God, not Malon. But here in this place, Boaz and Ruth produce Obed, the grandfather of the great King David. Now let's think through these three major players in the story, Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, and ultimately then upon David as well. As we think over this entire book, God chose to work off script when He chose to run His salvation plan through Ruth the Moabite. It was through a Moabite that God established King David on the throne of Israel Through a Moabite that the line of promise culminated in David's greater son, Jesus Christ. As as Ruth's anguished groans of childbirth give way to celebration of a boy named Obed, one who serves, God sees in the future the anguished cries of a peasant girl giving birth in this same village of Bethlehem to the promised Messiah. Remember Micah, remember Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient days. <clears throat> this prophecy fulfilled in the life of King David whose origins in Ephrathah are from ancient days, but ultimately the fulfillment in the one who comes from the ultimate ancient days. And when the prophets were asked, where will Messiah be born before He was born, or after, just after He was born, they knew it would be in this village of Bethlehem. From the promised line of Abraham running through Judah, God produced a Messiah who did not come to serve but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. And God did this through this Moabite. So we go back again, not to add anything that we've not seen, but to reiterate these themes that pulsate through the book. We go back and we see again Ruth and Naomi weeping in one another's arms as they stand on the crossroads between Moab and Israel in that heart-wrenching scene of utter despair. Ruth has no comprehension that someday a king will come from her now infertile womb. She could not begin to imagine that one day her offspring would rise from the dead, rise from the barren womb of the earth to rule not only Israel, but to rule the earth from David's throne. God was at work in Ruth's life. And her decision to set her own interests aside The best chance for marriage was to go back to Moab, but she sets her own interests aside and she remains loyal to her mother-in-law to do the next thing, to do the right thing 
in a moment of severe trial, all of that was used by God to bring us today to this place, to be worshiping together here. We are here because Ruth gave birth to Obed, who fathered Jesse, who fathered David, who ultimately fathered the line leading to Jesus Christ. For her part, when Naomi buried her husband and sons, there was no sense that she would ever be anything but an empty woman living in destitution. Desperate poverty. But here she is now, drawing to her chest a grandson. She has been embraced now by a new son-in-law who is a man of protection and care and standing in the community of Bethlehem. And the reason for all of this is that our God is a God of steadfast, loyal, covenant-keeping love who works all things together for good. We learn this again in this lesson, in this story This is not just a story of recovery for Naomi and for Ruth. And we rejoice in what God has done for these two women. This is our story because this is how our God works. Remembering again Romans 8 where Paul says, I consider that the suffering of this present time is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. And there are times like Naomi and Ruth where we run into trial and we wonder if life will ever make sense again. We run into difficulties, but this is one of the great themes that we draw from this book, that we have a God of steadfast, loyal love who is always working to bring us forward and to work out His salvation purposes. This is the order of the universe for those who love God. This is how it works. It may take time. It will be in the midst of grief, but slowly, sometimes imperceptibly, but assuredly, God is always working to love His people. Never ceasing in His endeavors to bring about His saving purposes ultimately. As the hymn writer Cowper wrote, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. This is our God. In Him we can trust. There's certainly nothing in our lives that will ever approximate Ruth's place in the lineage of the Messiah. Then again, We have no idea what our suffering as commoners, as foreigners originally to the covenants of promise, we have no idea what our suffering is working in the larger purposes of God. Only eternity will reveal that point. Let's think of it from Ruth and Naomi's standpoint, from Boaz's standpoint. Only eternity revealed it to them. They didn't know who Obed's grandson would be. They marry older in age and undoubtedly did not live that long. And they certainly had, under no circumstances, any sense that the son of their union would be in the line of the great Messiah prophesied in Scripture. It was only an eternity 
that they found that to be the case. And so it will often be, undoubtedly, in our lives as God works out His sovereign, saving purposes through the difficulties of life that we face, we may never discern what He has used us to accomplish until eternity. But we do learn from the human characters in this account how we are to live. We are to live with steadfast loyalty with faithful kindness toward others, to pour out our lives selflessly, trusting in God, and ultimately displaying these character traits because they flow from our God and because they come from our union with Him in His Son, Jesus Christ. And on that point, we think of Boaz, and we see in this man selfless devotion to the good of others. And in this we see how life is meant to be lived, how to make a difference for eternity. Those who live for self and scheme to get what is best out of life for themselves at the expense of others are forgotten. But those who live to serve others with grace and loving kindness live on in God's book. They serve with Him to advance His kingdom purposes. And the ultimate example is our Lord Jesus Christ who came not to be served, but like a greater Obed as one who came to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. This Redeemer not merely takes on a project, a family, but this Redeemer, Jesus Christ, lays down His life to die. And by that death provides redemption for his people. In Boaz we see a man of integrity who redeems his bride. But it points us through this faithful man to see the ultimate redeemer of Gentile outcasts. And here we are today, outcasts from among the nations who have been alienated from the covenants of promise by our birth, let alone by our nature. And yet here we are, as those now who celebrate the great Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who has come to purchase His bride. And while there are those who would stand in the way by idolatry to steal our heart and to take our inheritance, our Savior Jesus Christ acts in our behalf and He secures His bride. He redeems us for eternity, by His blood, by His resurrection. Let's bow for prayer. Father, there may be some among us who have not responded to that message of redemption in Jesus Christ. I pray that they would come and that every one of us would acknowledge that to be the bride of Christ, to be a member of that bride for whom He died, is of utmost eternal importance. I pray that anyone that has not come to saving faith in Christ today would respond and would come to trust Him and to honor Him. I ask, Father, that by Your mercy, according to Your purposes, that You will lead to salvation, unbelievers. And for we who know Christ as Savior, may we rejoice that we as Gentiles 
have been included now in the promise. We have become, through faith, children of Abraham who believe your word and have been saved from our sin. And in this we rejoice. We rejoice to know that you are a covenant-keeping God of loyal, loving kindness who never rests for the good of your people to accomplish your ultimate purposes. But may we remember that we don't see it all now. Grant us faith that we would trust and hope in eternity as we live lives of faithfulness to you and kindness to one another. Thank you for the beauty of the story of Ruth and Boaz and Naomi. God, above all, we thank you for David's greater son. And we rejoice to know him as Redeemer. May his name be praised among us. May we glory in our Redeemer. Help us now to sing with joy. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing in response, I will glory in my Redeemer. I will glory in my Redeemer. was the sin that drove the bitter nails and hung him on that judgment tree. I will glory in my Redeemer who crushed the power of sin and death, my only Savior before the Holy Judge, the Lamb who is my righteousness. The Lamb who is my righteousness. I will glory in my Redeemer. My life He bought, my love He owns. I have no longings for another. I'm satisfied in Him alone. I will glory in my Redeemer. Standing place of woes arising and rush upon me. My feet are firm held by His grace. My feet are firm held by His grace. I will glory in my Redeemer who carries me on eagles' wings. He crowns my life with loving kindness, His triumph song I'll ever sing. I will glory in my Redeemer, who waits for me at gates of gold. And when He calls me, it will be paradise, His face forever to behold, His face forever to behold. Let's stand before the Lord, before His Word. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, 
according to the power at work within us. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.